Hello, everyone, and welcome to Emmaus Way. Um, we're going to begin our service tonight uh, a little differently than we sometimes do. We, uh, a lot of times we'll have a musical call together. Um, tonight we are going to have uh, a red liturgy call together. Um, this is an invocation of the Holy Spirit by San Simeon, the new theologian who was an Eastern Orthodox theologian in the sort of 10th and 11th century. Um, but I, I think it is a really fantastic way to begin. We're, we're inviting the Holy Spirit to sort of come and dwell among us. Um, and there's a whole bunch of really wonderful images that he uses throughout the poem to, to uh, invoke that. So here we go. Come, true light. Come, life eternal. Come, hidden mystery. Come, treasure without name. Come, reality beyond all words. Come, person beyond all understanding. Come, rejoicing without end. Come, light that knows no evening. Come, unfailing expectation of the saved. Come, the raising of the fallen. Come, the resurrection of the dead. Come, all-powerful, for, unce- for unceasingly you create, refashion, and change all things by your will alone. Come, invisible, whom none may touch and handle. Come, for you always continue unmoved, yet at every instant you are wholly in movement. You draw near to us who lie in hell, and yet you remain higher than the heavens. Come, for your name fills our hearts with longing and is ever on our lips, and yet and yet who you are and what your nature is, we cannot say or know. Come, eternal joy. Come, unfading garland. Come, purple vesture of our great God and King. Come, belt of crystal set with precious stones. Come, sandal that none dares to touch. Come, royal robe and right hand of true sovereignty. Come, for my wretched soul has ever longed and ever longs for you. Come alone to the alone, for as you see, I am alone. You have separated me from all things and made me to be alone upon the earth. Come, for you yourself are the desire that is within me, and you have caused me to long after you, the holy and accessible. Come, my breath and my life. Come, the consolation of my humble soul. Come, my joy, my glory, my endless delight. Amen. Thanks, Josh. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to Emmaus Way. Um, My name is Travis, if you don't know me, and if it's your first time here, we especially welcome you. Um, Emmaus Way is a community of friends who are, in some sense, captured by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we seek to live that out uh, here in community as we gather around the scriptures and interpret them together through works of art, uh, through poetry and song and other arts, and also through justice and uh, works of redemption that God is up to in the world here in Durham and throughout the Triangle and the world. A um, couple of things just to keep in mind. If you are new and you're interested in uh, making contact with us, there's a yellow card out in the foyer, kind of an old-fashioned way to do it. But if you want to fill that out, I'm sure Tim or Amy or anybody would be glad to meet with you. We have a number of small groups that meet throughout the week in addition to our Sunday evening gathering. And if you're interested in those, uh, the person to contact is Elizabeth Eford, who I think is back with our kids tonight. So. Um, her email address is on the website if you want to get in touch with her. We also have a pub group that meets on Thursday nights. It's just kind of a place to talk about theology, philosophy, politics, uh, etc. And that meets at Bull McCabe's at uh, around 
And if you want to talk to somebody about that, you can get in touch with Dan Rhodes. Uh, tonight, kind of a special night. We're going to be meeting afterward, uh, going to dinner at the Q Shack to honor Wade and his... Where's Wade? Wade's uh, uh, ministry with us, uh, which has ended and will continue in different ways. And so we want to honor him and thank him for all of his work. So please feel invited to come out afterward if you can. Um, we want to thank uh, our setup and host team. So Sarah's hosting tonight. We want to thank Kenny, as always, for setting up. And I think the Efords are back with the kids tonight, so we want to thank them. Um, and Sarah asked me also to mention, if you're interested in signing up for our snack rotation, we have a lot of, I think they're mustache cookies or something back there tonight. Um, you don't have to do anything clever like that, but if you want to be on the snack rotation, uh, you can talk to Sarah about that. Uh, those are always the best or the worst. Uh, and then finally, since we are leaving early tonight, Tim has requested um, if we can, since this is not our, we don't live here, we kind of uh, camp here. So please, uh, once you're done, pick up your stuff, stack some chairs, and uh, we'll try to get out here as quickly as we can. What's that? There's one more announcement. Oh. Yeah. So, um, reality Ministries, you know, is the... We, we host this event every Tuesday called Pass the Peas. And this week, um, Jesse and I, along with a couple other people, are helping prepare the meal. And it's at Black Mill Church, which is just two blocks over, right, near Ninth Street. And so if you want to join us for either helping prep or clean up, we'd love to have you. You can just talk to me. It starts at um, 5.30 and goes till 8.30. So you can come for an hour. You can come for the whole thing. You can Whatever, but talk to me if you're interested. We'd love for you to join us. Wonderful. Does anybody else have any other announcements? Anything coming up? All right, well, welcome to Amaze Way. Thank you, Travis. Most of you know this, Reality Ministries is our landlord here. We love them very much for lots of reasons, uh, but one of our, our partnerships, we have a variety of partnerships uh, that we work with, and they just do amazing work. They have a kind of a, would you call it, Julie, a multi-pronged ministry. They work with... Uh, uh, youth and young adults with disabilities on Tuesday night, which Pass the Peas is related to, but they also have an after school here that is outstanding. That's uh, three three thirty to six o'clock on um, uh, every day after school. So I'll use that as a chance to remind you that there's a good chunk of people here that have or or do volunteer with Reality. But if you ever want to do that, we're we're excited that you connect with our our partnerships. So Julie would probably be somebody who could at least point you in the right direction on that. So tonight is a special night for us. It's a, a, a rite of passage. Uh, Wade, I have to say this, this might be the cheesiest part of tonight, but I, this, uh, I, I left an empty chair there for you, <laughs> and you will notice that there's not a lot of musicians here this evening. And um, one of my favorite comments that was made about Emmaus Way uh, was made by Andy and Anita, who I've seen cruising around here somewhere. But uh, they had been in California for about three years, and they came back. And, um, and they hadn't been a part of Emmaus Way before, but I had known them beforehand. And, you know, we're a community of, I don't know, somewhere around 100 to 50 people, depending on what year and what semester and all those things. And, um, and Andy came back and said, you know, there's something really wrong with this community. And I said, well, what's that, Andy? And he said, well, the music is too good for a, for a, for a small church. You know, you're kind of expecting something kind of awkward or I, I don't know what it is. But it was a great quote. It was a tribute to you, Wade. And Wade has been our... Um, 
first our artist in residence, um, and then our worship uh, arts pastor for almost eight years. The Emmaus Way is eight years old, and I think you uh, joined the fold a few months. So, wait, if you would come up and uh, join me up here, we're going to chat for a minute and uh, just have a chance to to thank you for uh, for your work and maybe uh, get a story or two out of you. So, uh, the funny, the, one of the my my memories, my first memory of Wade, I knew Wade casually. I knew that you were a uh, uh, had been a musician and a performing artist. In fact, I was in Memphis this week and. Uh, Wade's name came up in a, another one of your great pursuits, which was barbecue. And, and somebody said, oh, yeah, I know that guy. Man, he was the, the lead man for the basics uh, and love his music and all those things. But well, Remember when we played, uh, I think we, we actually maybe first uh, hung out at the Harbors at a, that, what was it, like a New Year's Eve party? Like, yeah, it was a New Year's Eve party. Well, we had to, we had, they, they divided up the room to play some game. And and um, we, we got you got stuck with me. I think was what it was because you're like uh, this guy's not going to help at all. This guy's got and a ponytail. He can't I, he can't have I any totally, kind of information I think in I him. I totally messed up the game that night. I don't think I helped you at all. And you were very nice. Like we're going to be losers, but we were happy losers. Yeah, yeah. But it took me I think about six to eight months to talk Wade into uh, getting involved in Mayus Way. I was very clever. It was a great approach. I, I said, I, you know, I just need a consultant to help me think about kind of worship and art in this new community we're forming and with this strategy that we would just talk about the kind of consulting that I needed uh, for on a regular basis. And at one point Wade just kind of said, which was exactly what I was looking for, you know, I might could do that. <laughs> oh, you know, I, I had never thought of that. You, you possibly could do that. But you probably uh, wouldn't want to do this. And you'd go, eh, I, might, I might do that. We could do that, maybe. Well, it's been an amazing joy. Wade is not leaving our community, but most of you know he owns a studio in town, Second Story Studios, and is a... Um, a uh, a producer of music in, in addition to a performer, and it's going to have the opportunity to do that more uh, than than just uh, church work, we hope. And so, Wade, you know, just before we kind of talk a little bit about art and music tonight, um, it, I was going to just ask you for a, a recollection or a thought about how it's how worship and art has changed here over eight years. There's a tendency in communities, and this is always great. You always want to be inventing new things, thinking about new things, uh, you know, embracing the present that you're in. But I'm one of those people that, that, that always thinks you never are at a spot on the path without having gotten there from somewhere else. So I, I, I don't know if that would be a, a good lead in, but I thought maybe it'd be interesting to hear you reflect a little bit on kind of how um, worship art music has evolved here, or maybe just a, a memory from the old days. We started out, most of, some of you know this, we were in a little loft above uh, Francesca's on 9th Street with uneven floors, little nails kind of sticking out of those floors. The kids would run around, and most of us that knew about the little nails were just kind of behind them, hoping they weren't going to fall on that. It was, it was cramped, and it was, it was lovely, but something about the past, Wade. Yeah, I, I was thinking about the different things that... Um we began that had become traditions at Emmaus Way, and I was thinking about how um, coming in with um, sort of a liturgical framework from churches that I've been a part of, but knowing that we weren't going to do liturgy that way, there was a lot of opportunity for people to say, hey, can I participate in this, or what, what are we going to try? So, you know, there was an art night that Mimi and Laura Chase and other folks did where it was um, drinking wine and hanging out, and then we tried to do things like 
um, for Lent, you know, actually bring bread that didn't taste that great and some stuff that didn't taste that good to put on the bread. And then, you know, having these um, things that are, are part of sort of liturgical frameworks, but that a lot of folks that came from non-liturgical backgrounds were kind of going, what are we doing? And so, you know, getting to do Lent by, you know, singing music that actually had lament in it was interesting because for a lot of churches, and this goes across denominational lines, there's not really lament at all. And so to have a chance to do um, things like Lent that way where we actually, the room got darker, and there were these sort of uh, tangible ways that we tried to do uh, liturgy, but also in a very homegrown way. It wasn't like it was some, you know, we didn't have robes, although that would have been nice to have gotten some monogram robes. Um, but um, try, trying to do something that was really um, laid back, but that also included what people brought. So I remember that first, uh, I think Advent, or was it Lent or Advent? I think it might have been Lent, where there was actually chicken wire all over one of those brick walls up there. Yeah. Um, you know, And that kind of uh, was something we followed up with, with the doors that you guys brought and the prayers uh, that were there. I mean, that's been a tradition that's kind of changed in different ways, but trying to have the community actually leave their prayers out for other people to see. Those are the kind of things that, as people just sort of brought their ideas, they've sort of gradually been folded into um, a man's way. And that's been a fun thing to watch happen. Absolutely. I was just this week, I don't know if Wade knows this, I was in a conference, speaking at a conference in Memphis, and it was in like the Anglican Cathedral of all cathedrals of, of uh, it, it, I mean, it, it might have been a little taller than Duke Chapel. I mean, it was a serious amazing cathedral and and wade brought an anglican uh background to this community but most of the people in the original five to ten people had no liturgical church calendar perspective at all and it was interesting to be with uh, the the most reverend uh dean of the, the of the cathedral there hear him say you know what our struggle at times is to take liturgy that and not let it be so calcified to make it live because it's powerful and beautiful. Our challenge was on the opposite end was to, to be around people who had never experienced what the challenge of the church calendar could mean in terms of living an alternative narrative and what the and what liturgy could do to frame our creativity. And I think, Wade, that's probably one of the greatest gifts that you gave to us is bringing that liturgical passion, but then coming in as a musician and saying, you know what, we will fill liturgy first with music, music that comes from different, like tonight we're going to listen to a song that comes from several years ago, uh, yeah, and, and, and really taught us how much creativity could happen in some of the frameworks that the church has said, and I, that was a passion that I'm not sure, as I was thinking about Emmaus Way at its very beginning, I'm not sure I had that in mind, and that was really one of the ways that you directed us very quickly, month three or four in our life, to, to something that has been amazing. And uh, one of the things that if you're a new Emmaus Way person, um, if you want to get our Spotify list, which I think is probably through Josh Bussman, or um, we have several online, uh, we have an online CD that builds. Uh, we have a, um, I'll forget now, it's called Write 7, which is an original project, and then we have an Advent Write 7, and a... Um, well, there's some other songs that I've worked on in the past that, uh, in product. that include the Dark Knight. So you can get that on, on a variety of sources and get a sense of how this liturgical body frame. The other thing I want to thank you about is, I'm not sure I thought about this a whole lot, but, uh, but 
one of the things we used to say always here is that worship is not a 5 o'clock to 6.30 thing in Emmaus Way. Uh, this is a gathering of worship around the, the table, the sacrament, uh, the, the, the sacred text. But we see ourselves as worshipers um, all week long. And one of the things that you did that was amazing for us is to begin thinking about when you come into a worship gathering, can we provide people with music, with other forms of art, things that can live on their iPod, can live on their... Uh, on their computer and can be forms of, of community prayer and worship throughout the week. And those were huge projects, things that I really don't know. We might have gotten there, but we wouldn't have gotten there the way we got there, Wade, if you hadn't brought that passion to us. And then we're able to, to execute that in such an amazing, amazing way. So uh, I, I, I want to thank you. Uh, I, uh, one of the things I think is really important as we make our changes in rites of passage, I, I hope that we're a community that's marked by gratitude. And, I, I, you know, in addition to all the inappropriate fun, oh, you know, one of the other traditions you brought to us, you might want to uh, remember that, is the Mayest Way. We have kind of a tradition of a, a scotch toasting uh, of the greatest laments and the most wonderful things of life. I think you brought one of the first one of those along, and that's been a tradition that many people here have participated in. So uh, I first want to, before I get the mic back to you, just want to thank you for eight years of incredible labor. Um, I won't thank you for eight years of friendship because that's an ongoing deal, but um, but it's been an amazing gift to this community. You've helped shape us. Uh, you've helped us struggle through how can we be an aesthetic church, uh, even though we're in uh, a church that moves in and moves out every week, and these have been significant acts of labor. But uh, I want to, uh, before I ask Josh to return, uh, a final story, a thought, uh, a word for the road ahead for us from you, Wade? Well, you know, I was thinking about the, um, the part of um, liturgy that I think is oftentimes not explored that much, and, and that's that you really said to me, if we're going to do liturgy, then let's do what liturgy means. Liturgy really is the literal words of the people. And so whatever you see from the Book of Common Prayer or whatever was still written by someone. And I think the idea that we can partner with the liturgy is um, a really interesting thing that if you're from a liturgical church, you might not see it that way because you might see it as very set. And I think one of the things that bringing art does is it says if art's part of the liturgy, then you get a chance to see story as something that is going to continue to be moving. You're going to hear stories from different people. You're going to hear stories from happy places, sad places, uh, great tragedy, um, places where there's something being built, something where there's a lot of questions. And I think something that liturgy oftentimes can say to certain people is, we're done with the questions. We're, we're, we've just got answers. Mm -hmm. And I think that using art as liturgy has given us a chance to say, no, questioning is huge for us. We have to ask those questions where we're not sure how to sit with the answers because that allows us to then talk together and say, maybe how you've experienced this is different than how I have. And I think that um, when, when you gave me the chance to do that with songs, that was something that I could do fairly naturally just because of my time as a songwriter and, and as a touring musician where the audiences clearly wanted storytelling. They really wanted to hear what, what went into this, what was your experience. And then in many ways, the more specific the story was to particulars in my life or the life of the writers I was working with, then the more universal the song was. And I think that's true of liturgy. The more specific we tell our stories in the liturgy, 
actually the more universal the liturgy becomes. And that's a little counterintuitive, I think, given how a lot of churches operate. Mm, thank you, Wade. We will say thank you many, many, many times. You know, uh, the empty chair over here is a reminder that we would love to, you know, we, as we evolve forward as a community, uh, we would love for you to continue to participate as an artist in this community in lots of ways. You're working on a, a pretty exciting project right now. Um, Trying to. Yeah, this new heaven and new earth project, kind of a right seven with a more of an eschatological perspective, which I think is going to be really encouraging to lots of people here. So thank you uh, again. A quick invitation tonight, very casually after we, we usually hang out here afterwards pretty slowly, but we're going to try to get out and get down to the Q Shack and hang out and hear some, uh, hear some more Wade stories and uh, raise a glass or... Uh, a burnt end to uh, to 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 wait. That's, there's a metaphor in there somewhere. <laughs> but uh, so please feel invited to to come out and hang out with us uh, tonight. And Josh Busman, I think, is going to lead us in the next step. You get to stay. All right. All right. Round two. Yeah, so when we were thinking about uh, tonight and uh, sort of some of the ways that we wanted to make sure we honored um, Wade's legacy here at Emmaus Way, um, the, the recorded music that he has uh, made in the Right 7 project and uh, in the Advent project and the sort of extensions thereof um, has really been such an important way that I think we as a community have come to understand what it means to be a part of Emmaus Way. Um, and it's such an important blueprint for us that sort of shows us what it means to worship within this community. And so uh, I think it was, uh, it was immediately apparent that we wanted to interface with uh, some of the music that, that you had created over the years. Um, and when we got together earlier this week, this was like the first song sort of off your, uh, off your tongue. And it seemed like you really uh, wanted to bring this song before the community. So if you could just talk a little bit about uh, St. John of the Cross and Lorena McKenna and sort of the, the background of the text and, and how you came to the song would be great. Yeah, uh, Lorraine McKinnett's a strange uh, kind of artist for me to be so interested in because um, I actually learned of her from some next-door neighbors. When I lived in California, uh, the next-door neighbors were from Quebec, and Lorraine McKinnett is from Ontario, but she's a pretty well-known Canadian artist, and so they were kind of shoving Canadian artists at us, and, you know, it was always like, <laughs> gee, thanks. And... Um, so this was one of those records that when they first gave me, uh, I think they, they gave me the visit, um, I found that in studio work, sometimes your ears just get saturated. Like when you're doing a, a lot of really critical listening, um, sometimes music, just all music starts to sound terrible. And so you, you'll have worked all day long, and then you get to a point point you're like, man, if I hear another sound, I'm going to hit somebody. And um, Lorena McKinnett was one of those artists that I could put her record on when I couldn't listen to anything else. And I'm not sure if it was just that it was different or the beauty or the way that it sounded. Um, she uses a lot of, um, you know, real instruments played by people from all over the world and different cultures and kind of has recorded a good bit at Peter Gabriel's place where there's just sort of camps of musicians hanging out working on records. And so you can sort of wander around and, and invite someone in. Um, and so I think I, I began to get a sense uh, that sonically I liked it, but as I began to understand how she wrote, um, I started realizing that she actually had liturgy in her music, not all the time, but that she had a real respect for different traditions that included liturgy. And so this song, The Dark Night of the Soul, was a song 
that uh, intrigued me because I'd heard that term quite a bit, and people have used it for many different things, books and other things, but uh, St. John of the Cross was a, a monk in Spain in the 1500s. I haven't done a lot of hanging out with monks in um, Spain, and certainly wasn't alive in the 1500s. Uh, so I, I was not that familiar with it, but as I began reading this uh, translation and listening to her song, I realized that there was something remarkable going on where this person was describing this incredibly, incredibly intimate love for God that was actually romantic. And I thought, that's weird. We don't usually do a romantic thing with God. That feels kind of strange to me. But as I live with the song, like so many songs that we've used here, the song kind of started to work its way into me. And I started to feel it and experience different lines and things differently than when I first looked at it. And, and so that's been a part of my criteria for Emmaus Way, is to find songs that worked their way into me. Not in the first listen, maybe not in the tenth, but that over multiple listens, I realized they, they, they grew somehow. They somehow became something bigger than what I first heard them. And so um, trying to think about um, the, the subject matter, I, I was able to do a little bit of research, and one of the things that I came across was that, that um, John was really, really ostracized by his community. As a matter of fact, he wasn't just ostracized, he was actually punished for writing this. And if you've ever read any of Teresa of Avila, she was also, uh, she was a nun working um, around that time, and she was also fairly ostracized, had to set up kind of her own communities that were under a lot of uh, criticism and attack. And so they were trying to find ways to relate to God a little bit differently than, you know, at that time, the, Spain had really been um, a, a huge part of the power structure of the Catholic Church. And the, the Italians and the Spanish were fighting a lot for control of the church. And these folks, like St. John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila, were trying really hard to say, no, that power structure is not what we're interested in. And at the same time as the Catholic Church was losing a little political power, the whole um, movement of Romantic poetry was just gaining incredible strength. And so they took this movement of Romantic poetry and brought it to their life as celibate people trying to serve God. And so you get this crazy smashing of Romantic poetry and people who are celibate. And, you know, uh, apparently the tradition goes that John spent the entire night in the stocks, naked in, in the courtyard, as his brothers just walked by and laughed, because he had gotten in trouble for writing stuff like this, and apparently then wrote this, you know, after one of these nights being out in the yard all night, so... That's great. So uh, what we're going to do now is to, to listen to uh, this recording, and you'll see the text is printed on the, the bulletin in the Dark Night of the Soul. Um, this is a recording you did, I guess, back in March, I guess, was when you sort of finished the, this, at least this mix of it. Mm -hmm. And I know you'll, we'll hear you, and we'll hear Dr. Tim Hawley. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, so here we go.
darkened night The flame of love was burning in my breast By a lantern bright I fled my house while all in quiet rest Shrouded by the night I quickly fled The veil concealed my eyes While all within lay quiet as the dead Night thou was my guide Oh night more loving than the rising sun Without a guide or light In that which burns so deeply in my heart This fire that led me on Shone more bright than all the midday sun
Cello at one time, right? <laughs> wow. Wait, I really want to thank you for sort of indulging us in that. I know it's not always like the most comfortable thing to sit in the middle of a room and listen to your song be played while everyone looks at you. But um, I think it is a really powerful sort of uh, uh, a, a very powerful instance where you've managed to sort of cull through the uh, the history of the church and to find. Um, an, an artist who's really bringing something that I think is is historied and and has a wonderful story to it, um, and really provides us with some great liturgical sort of handholds in this community. It's something that you've just done so well. So I, I think that was an excellent uh, song to to really highlight that. Um, two more sort of quick questions before I let you go. Um, so about that song, now that we've heard it. Um, what do you think that that particular song sort of has to say to Emmaus Way, right? I mean, you talked a little bit about it's a 15th century monk, right? What does that have to do with 21st century Durham? Uh, but what, what was it about, uh, you know, this community or living in Durham that sort of made that song particularly powerful for you? Um, well, for one, just the, the beauty of it. And I think that's why I mentioned being able to listen to Lorena McKinnett's music, just that I think in terms of being co-creators with God, I think beauty is important, particularly in a world where there's so much brokenness. I think that when we 
can be a part of creating beauty. I think we are a part of that creative impulse of, of God in the world. So that's one simple first, you know. And um, to be able to have someone like Tim play, you know, it's, uh, I mean, I've just sat and <laughs> marveled at his playing on that. Um, it's amazing what you've done. And I think that the chance to have um, this juxtaposition, again, I think art tends to take us into questions sometimes more than answers. So in this particular case, you've got a guy who spent all night naked chained up who then comes back and writes a love song like this. I, I'm pretty sure that would not be what I would do. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I've been thinking about how to blow up my friends or, you know, the people who had put me there. And um, thinking about someone having that type of response, I just thought, as people of faith, we need each other's stories because I'm going to respond a certain way. But if you respond like this, I need to hear that. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, I think that's probably where it came from is just sort of saying, and then too, to challenge us, could, could our love for God be so tangible, so personal, that we might even see a romantic aspect to our love for God? And, and I think we're just not used to thinking about that. We're, you know, and then I think too, um, there was a, a, a great essay that a friend lent me where the songwriter was saying this really simple thing, that there is no love song written that is actually really about the person the love song is for. So the church has missed out on this incredible collection of songs because the church has ignored basically most all love songs. But the person said, as soon as you write a love song, it's not about that person anymore because you're trying to immortalize it. You're trying to immortalize that thing, and that thing is always God. God is the one that goes on. We as people die loves fade away. There are things that happen that, that, you know, breakups and all kinds of things. But when we immortalize something, it's really about God. And I think that this is a song where someone was trying to connect the love poetry they thought they wouldn't experience with another person as a celibate monk, but then trying to connect it to God. And I thought, yeah, I, I wonder if we could live into that. I don't know what that even means, but I wonder if we can live into something like that. I think that's great. And, and it sort of it transitions into the, the final thing I wanted to ask about, which is um, some of the themes you're talking about, especially this idea of sort of what, you know, what endures, what goes on, I think relates to work that you're doing now on this sort of new project, the new heaven and new earth sort of idea. So if you could just talk about um, sort of what you're thinking about as an artist going forward and then how we as a community can sort of continue to, to live and, and, and think with you uh, on those things. Well, the, the good thing about any new project is you just don't know. <laughs> so, you know, I was um, talking with a friend about how some painters are so terrified of a blank canvas that they will turn their back to the canvas and flip paint over their shoulder just so there's something <laughs> on that stupid white canvas. And I think sometimes from a, a standpoint of music, the, the empty hard drive, or it used to be tape, but the, the blank tape, that was sort of terrifying in some ways. And so the, um, the trying to get going is, is sometimes, you know, challenging. But I, I've been trying to um, sit down with different songs. I've been trying to ask myself thematically, you know, what, what has been speaking to me? And then trying to ask, you know, what are the questions that I have? And I think... That's a process that I'm, I'm looking forward to trying to enter into further, is like what things are really mysteries for me in the idea of um, a new heaven and a new earth. What things terrify me? What things interest me? What things seem crazy? 
And then how can art or music or both or even new songs, you know, how, how can I relate that way? So this really is sort of a, a, a very much of a, a questioning and a sitting with things place for me, trying to sort of ask um, what speaks the loudest and then trying to listen to that and then see if I can start shaping some of that. And, you know, I, I've got some recording going, but... Um, I'm also continuing to find different songs and going, yeah, maybe that'll work. Or, you know, writing, trying to write some lyrics and going, maybe that'll work. I don't know. So, yeah, I mean, you guys can certainly uh, feel free to ask about that. And um, I hope that, you know, when I get some things firmed up more, that I can share some of it with you. Absolutely. That's, uh, that's wonderful. So uh, I just want to thank you again for being able to, like I said, to sort of sit up here and, and listen to your music with us. Um, oh, and treat. Thank you. Something that we, we uh, I know a lot of us in this community really enjoy. Um, and we're going to have a chance to listen to another uh, recording that Wade's done uh, when we come to the table a little later. Um, right now, though, I want to invite you to stand up to sort of greet the person next to you and pass a piece of Christ to them. Um, go and get some extra coffee or mustache cookies or popcorn or all of the things that we have. Uh, we'll call you back in a couple minutes. So it is great to see everybody here tonight. A new semester is upon us. Um, I, I feel that bizarre vulnerability of having uh, been away my first two classes of the semester. Brandon has assured me he's going to talk to my professors, assert some uh, professorial power over them. and. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but it is a new it's a new year uh, academically uh, though we are firmly in the motion of the new church year uh, and I want to thank again Advent here was fantastic I I won't list the name of people the names of the people who did so much work but it was just absolutely beautiful here Wade that was another area that you uh, really pushed us hard early on is to to mark the seasons and I remember our very first Lent uh, you wrote that song Silence which was. Just just a kind of a gift to the community. So it's the seasons have been beautiful here. Uh, the, the art that Carol Baker did that uh, marks the church calendar for us, so many things that we've done. So um, we're kicking into a new dialogue on, um, on diversity. Uh, and I'm, I'm excited to talk about this. This is one of the things that um, we did our, our listening sessions, our house meetings this fall. And a lot of you said this was a, an interesting subject, one that you wanted to talk to more about as a community. And we realized that, you know, there's a lot of framing and a lot of things that we'd like to do and a lot of action that we want to do in, in diversity. One of the best things about Emmaus Way is that when you describe it as a community of activists, you're, you're not really making something up at that point in time. There's so many of you who are deeply involved in so many things. So um, this will be exciting for us to think together about how does diversity relate to the gospel and our... Our, our work together. Uh, one of the things that you'll see here in our community, uh, one of the initial commitments it, uh, of, to diversity is encoded in, um, in, in our values and several things. I'm going to do a really poor job tonight at something that we do uh, every week, which is dialogue, uh, just merely because we had a lot to do tonight. But one of the things that we say every week as a part of Emmaus Way is that um, we gather around biblical text to hear each other's 
voices and to hear each other's stories and hear each other's experiences. One of the things for me has, I've had the privilege of being a pastor for almost 30 years now, but one of the things that I've struggled with as a listener or a speaker is that I don't want my experiences to frame your struggle and your joy with the gospel because my experiences are in some ways limited. And so one of the things that we feel very strongly about is that as we interpret a text, we interpret it together. And we have many different perspectives in this room. Uh, We come from many different pathways. Um, We have talked about, and this has been amazing here, we have talked about politics, some of the most divisive issues with uh, tremendous acts of love where people have said, um, I'm not sure I agree with what Tim's saying. I appreciate that he's saying it. Here's where I'm coming from. And it's been something that's really special here. So in that way, we say this, we say this to newcomers, is that when someone new comes into this community, when their voice comes in this community, we change instantly because there's not some sort of subtle desire to craft you into a perspective of theology that I hold or or a community that isn't still learning. And so your presence matters. And that practice of presence in this community is one of the ways that, that we live out this idea of, of diversity. So it's coded into... Um, into the life of that. We also talk a lot about about striving and struggling here. One of the things that we know, not only do we know we're not perfect, but we know that we will never arrive at perfection. There is not a blueprint here that says when we get there, we will know that we've got it. And so we're constantly struggling. We're constantly learning. There are things that I I can pull up old dialogues that we did eight years ago, and and I'll kind of go, oh, my goodness, did I say that? I hope I hope I went over that note and didn't put that up. Because I've learned from you. Um, eight years of pub group for me, uh, reading uh, articles and thinking uh, with this community here has been transformative for the group, transformative for me, transformative for everybody who gets the articles. So uh, diversity is encoded into our community. That doesn't mean that we do it well all the time, and it doesn't mean there's not great failures in it, but it's a part of our, our value life. Now, as we discuss this, and you also know, most of you know this, that um, uh, the, the act of creating a dialogue on Sunday night begins in community at Emmaus Way. There's, on Thursdays, five or six of us gather, and that group has changed over time, but it's always five, six, or seven of us who look at the text together, we think about it together, we raise questions. Some weeks I go in thinking, I'm going to be talking about this, and after that hour and a half meeting, we are moving in an entirely different direction, but there's a community who, who kind of looks over this. And Dan Rhodes, who is one of our pastors, he had a good word this Tuesday on this. In his teaching at Duke Divinity, one of the things he says is, when I teach on this subject, um, I usually mention a, a good, important ground rule of graciousness. Is that there's no way that you can speak uh, about diversity, culture, cultural studies, race, any of those things, without in some way uh, giving offense and taking offense. Because none of us have broad enough experience to be able to talk forcefully or powerfully about that. There's no such thing as perfect sensitivity. So this is just an invitation. That's kind of our ground rule is to be gracious speakers and listeners uh, to each other because there's just no way. And you do this to me. There's many a night when I get ready to lead a dialogue here and I think, you know, 
to really make this safe, which is not a goal, but to make it safe, I, I might need to spend like 45 minutes doing disclaimers. Tonight, I'm not talking about this, but I do value it. Uh, I'm not going to balance that point with this because it needs to be said in and of itself. But if I were to balance it, I might say that. And, and I don't do that because it would be phenomenally dull for all of you, dull for me. Um, and, and we have this kind of generosity and graciousness that's important that understands that when you say something in dialogue, um, it, that's not all that you've ever said on it. It's just what you're saying in that moment and in this space and time. So I thought that was a good word from Dan for us to keep that um, in mind. Now, let me, as we're kind of launching into this, and I realize, like, diversity, I mean, first of all, just for fun, let's list all the words that we can think of that are associated with diversity. And you can smirk or laugh or, I mean, because some of the words are hard and some of them are political and some are not liked. But throw out a few words that when we're on the subject of diversity, what are some of the other words that we talk about? Multiculturalism. Multiculturalism. And, and like, just, just for fun on that one, when you hear that word... Do you think of that as a positive thing or kind of, I'm not sure, you know, what, what do you think about that word? Flags. Flags, okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I have that associated with like, you know, I, I, I have to put that, you know, some sort of ethnic Sunday, you know, where, where you, you knock off a people group on a Sunday night and then you don't have to worry about them all week. Uh, uh, what do you, what, how about you, Ben? Right, right. So then we can get to the important stuff <laughs> sometimes. Uh, how about another word or two related to this? Race relations. Race relations. And, is that, and, and I have positive, negative. What do you think about that word? Um, mine's been positive. Positive. I, I sort of the connotation of like discussions and trying to have dialogue. Great. Yeah. It, it seems to imply that difference is going to be talking to each other. Right. Absolutely. Other code words. Okay. <laughs> now, I was just about to say that. <laughs> Absolutely. Others. Hey, Tim. Yes. Sorry, Jessica. When I was at the NNO, um, I think because they didn't want to give us as many days off, we had something called Diversity Day, which was in lieu of Martin Luther King Jr. Day. So you could choose, you could choose to celebrate civil rights or take Good Friday off, say, or, you know, you could... You could celebrate Hanukkah. You, you, you had your choice. So that's diversity. you got to pick what camp you're in. And now, and as a writer, wouldn't you catch that, Jesse, as ironic? That's <laughs> just the hair that Diversity Day represented almost like Ben's multiculturalism. Actually, we're not going to get into many of these diversities there. Uh, absolutely. And another reaction. or, or and, Yeah, sure. Trigger. <laughs> One of the most uncomfortable episodes you can see dealt with the whole diversity thing. And, it's, and sometimes how I think it can play out is there's, there, there can be a way in which multiculturalism, with all the good intentions with it, is just another, another white liberal way of trying to control a conversation and situation. And that's, that's sort of what, in its own way, actually plays out in the office where you guys fumbling and saying absolutely the wrong thing. 
I know in my own discipline uh, that my PhD is in this thing called culture, curriculum, and change. And I presented my first paper that made reference to critical race theory. And, uh, and, my, you know, and I had this, I was horrified at my first conference, uh, not really realizing there'd be like, you know, 10 people in the room when you did it, because the comments that when it was accepted were so violent of someone saying that this was the most, the correct way to use critical race theory. Someone wrote like five pages, you know, on a, a two paragraph form of how it was an inappropriate use of critical race theory. And, and my paper actually wasn't using critical race theory. It was referring to those who did use. So in the academic world, there's lots of landmines uh, related to this. It's certainly lots of Guilt. I remember that heinous Saturday Night Live skit uh, on white guilt. You guys, you're, you might be a little young for this, but uh, it was Martin Luther King Day, and um, and there was a couple of guys that were African Americans. There basically said, "You just can feel the white guilt around me, so let's pretend that we give gifts on Martin Luther King Day." And so they just started talking to each other about the gifts that they were giving each other, and all these white guys are like, "Oh my God, I didn't bring a gift for Martin Luther King Day," and this one guy. Uh, Tim Holly, this actually would work well. It's, I, I think if you could pull this off in a couple of places, but, uh, maybe not as well as Central, but you know uh, the. Uh, <laughs> but but so this guy finally goes, "Oh my God, oh, take my laptop!" <laughs> and he just gets on his laptop. And on the way out, they're walking out of the building, and they're, they've got like this huge bag, and the guy says. Not as good as last year. I got 11 laptops. <laughs> but there was this, you know, inappropriate humor. And by the way, I'll probably offend you guys with my humor once a week in this. Um, but, but the idea that, that there's a lot of guilt that relates to it. Jim, Jim. Well, it's interesting to me that you introduced this topic of diversity and it all immediately went to racial and ethnic diversity. And there are so many others. You know, income diversity, uh, sexual orientation, uh, you know, it goes on. Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting, just um, we, we often have a default diversity, one that maybe we're dealing with or a, de a default diversity that we're ignoring. And it's and it, interesting that there's so many different, not only categories, but experiences that relate to that. That's a great point for us because this is going to be a whole, it's going to be a broad point on that. Yeah, Kim. Absolutely. And Kim, it's good to say that because that's going to take us back to the Dan Rhodes rule. There's no way, and I've been in, I have been in extremely liberal gatherings and extremely conservative gatherings that were deeply fundamentalist, like any kind of diversionary or different thought was going to be, you know, scaldedly dealt with. You are not going to be perfect in your conversation. Uh, we're not going to record. I, well, we're going to put on the podcast and uh, underline embarrassing things. But other than that, uh, uh, no, we're not going to do that. So let me mention a few things. You've said this, but as we move forward, let me mention a few things that are not on our agenda as we talk about diversity moving forward. So this is, there will not be uh, dialogues on any of these things moving forward. We're not going to talk about diversity as some sort of hip association. I mean, you know, we've all been in cocktail parties and at pubs and things like that where people kind of like 
one-up each other with diversities. You know, I've got a friend that, I did this, uh, I know that, what about, you know, this is not going to be some journey toward some sort of kind of hip uh, meaning-making for us. So, uh, um, uh, so not that. Um, also, and especially in church settings, this happens some, I hate to say this, but we, this is, there's not some hidden goal uh, of, of some sort of manipulative diversity that we talk. In other words, this is not about, sometimes in, in, in Christian settings, I hate to say this, but diversity is often just a short little line from butts and seats. You know, the idea that, you know, if we get, if we have the right kind of diversity, then we're attractive enough in the place that we live. And so the goal is not attraction. It's not some sort of hipster mentality. It's not uh, some sort of manipulation. We understand that this is something that we'd struggle with. And as Jim points out, even when we raise the subject of diversity, we're automatically thinking of certain things and forgetting others. Um, this will also not be a, um, a kind of a, a goal of some sort of admissions photo diversity. In other words, we're, we're not going to like work our way. I have a high school senior, and so my inbox gets, oh, 50 letters a day from colleges. I get all kinds of uh, brochures. Our mailbox is full. And they use the same picture for every... Did you know that every university in America is phenomenally diverse? There are no primarily white institutions in America. Uh, they all have this scripted group of five kids who dominate every campus in America, or at least take the photo for every campus in America. And we all know you've been to universities. If we, if we compared our schools, we would find some that were exceedingly diverse and others that you would have to say it wasn't that diverse. So we're not looking for something that makes us look good. Good. Um, we also are not going to treat this in kind of a naive kind of bunnies and flowers kind of way. Uh, in the sense that uh, Stanley Hauerwas at Duke Divinity School makes this point. It's a good one. He says, you know, diversity at times can be phenomenally dangerous. It is easier sometimes when we're around likeness. And, and diversity can draw us into all sorts of situations that are uncomfortable. And we want to be aware of that. Um, we also, and we just finished, if you're new or this is the first time, we just finished a, a dialogue series on practice and being a community of practice. Our goal is not to land in some sort of theoretical or theological abstraction that, that makes us feel like we've done our business here. This is designed to lead us into practice and into action. And it may be challenging actions uh, for us. Um, we also don't want to forget as we're doing this, this is not the only church in Durham or in North Carolina or in America or in the world. And so there's no impulse or understanding that we represent everything that is the kingdom of God. It's much bigger than us. And, and in the community of connected people who are struggling to worship God, we understand that we have some strengths, other people have strengths, we're learning for other communities, but we don't need to process this as that no one is getting this right unless we're getting this right. So we will not do that. And Trigger, I think you said something like this, but you know, a lot of, when, especially when it comes to diverse groups and divergent groups, leads really quickly at times to identity politics and, and a politics of recognition. So, so if I am in some sort of mindset that I am diverse in some way, it, it's very easy to demand recognition. 
And that can be very good. I'm not, I'm not harping on um, uh, the pure negativeness of that, but there's something implicit that says if, if Trigger is trying to get my recognition, then somehow we've set up a hierarchy that you are not Trigger until I, in this case, maybe old white guy says to trigger you indeed are trigger and in so doing that we've set up a hierarchy that you are not um, you are not you unless I bless it and so one of the things that I'm thinking a lot about when it comes to uh, all kinds of diversities is what is beyond recognition what is beyond kind of the game that says you are here because sometimes the game you is you are here is simply a game of tolerance uh, Trigger, I acknowledge that you're indeed here. Please always sit in that corner. You know, I mean, it, it, can, it can work out that way sometimes. So I also tonight just wanted to take a moment and talk a little bit about our community life related to some of the diversities around us. Really two things about it, because it'll just give you a little bit of the journey that we've been on for eight years. This is not to just entirely affirm the journey that we've been on, but to kind of give you a sense of where we're on the path so that we can move forward together. Here's a couple things that we did at Emmaus Way. Um, we actually bled over one diversity very early in the life of this community, is that as Emmaus Way was being formed, one of the things that we did not see uh, in, the, in, in church life in Chapel Hill and in Durham was a lot of theological diversity. What we saw was there was a lot of, 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 of encampments. When I was uh, working near Chapel Hill, um, this is common to a lot of universities. There's two pastors groups at, at the University of North Carolina. There's the liberal pastors and the evangelical pastors. And they meet together about once every three years and no one attends. <laughs> Just kind of the liberal boss and the evangelical boss get together and say, well, everybody's kind of busy this week. Uh, but it's, it's deeply divided. That's a lens. That, that whole argument is over intellectually, but in terms of social practice, there's a vast amount of division. And so one of the things that we understood is that we wanted to step into a different kind of space, a space that wasn't rooted in always the past and past arguments, and we wanted there to be a place that when we talked about text, there were multiple voices. So that, and in this room, there are people who are atheists. There are people who are, come from some of the most conservative of backgrounds, some of the most liberal backgrounds. We have different, all types of diversities in the room in terms of experience when we look at the text. And we wanted to make that happen. That was not easy to do. In fact, that was like, bumpy for 18 months. My very first sermon prep group, and those of you who are kind of savvy with seminaries, um, we had five seminarians in the group. There was a person from Duke Divinity School. I went to Gordon-Conwell. There was a person from Harvard Divinity School, a person from Southeastern Baptist in, uh, up in Wake Forest, and somebody from Dallas Theological Seminary. Now, if you know seminaries, you know that those five would never be gathered together in any way, form, or action. In fact, they may pray for each other to collapse into a hole in the ground. Um, and, and that was our first sermon prep group. And it was not uncommon that I would hear, um, that's incredibly unfaithful to the text from one person. And then the next week, the next person say, that's incredibly unfaithful to the text. It was, it was highly charged and politicized. And we struggled that out. I mean, I would go home and go, I've been a pastor for 20 years. I did not know I was this stupid. 
I had myself kind of stupid here, but not that bad. But it was so great were the diversities that were present. So that's one of the things we did, is we privileged conversation. We privileged diversity, and we, and we did not want to privilege a manipulative posture on that. One of the things that I said is, the goal is not to make you like me. The goal is for us to struggle and play together in biblical text, in the Spirit's leading, in the gospel, and in kingdom work, and see where it takes us. And I think we've done a decent job with that. One of the other things that we did is we had actually no clue we would be so young. We actually started with people in their mid-30s to mid-40s, but because we weren't kind of a program-style church, that demographic struggled and they disappeared. Uh, we went from like 25 people to 5 people to 7 to 8 to 9 to 10 to 11 to 17, and then 12 graduated, and then 5, you know, I mean, it was that kind of thing, and, and we were really surprised that we we would be that young uh, to begin with. But one of the things that we talked about is we realized, I'm not sure we can fix that immediately. Um, and, and that slowly begun to change in, in this community. Um, we, we were really, really, really white. We were really, really, really straight. We were all sorts of things that there were diversities that we valued, but we didn't have represented in, in our community life. And so one of the things we thought about is, Let's do this in a manner that hopefully theological diversity will breed other diversities. So uh, we, we said, let's start with something we can do, and hopefully it will continue to create tensions where new diversities will begin. But when we form partnerships, let's form partnerships that are really different from us. So our partnerships, Reality Ministries, uh, uh, Jim and Gail's organization, Africa Rising, Durham Can, which is a grassroots political organizing group, and um, Antioch Builds Community, uh, diversities of, of race and whole ranges of things, are, especially socioeconomics, are deeply represented in that. There's some really good organizations that churches do in Durham that we didn't do because we realized they're as white as we are. They are probably in the same socioeconomic group as us. And Dan took me to a Durham CAN meeting eight years ago, and the diversity was so overwhelming, and the leadership of the, the group was so kind of invested in a lower socioeconomic stats, statue. It was bilingual, largely triracial. It was multi-faith in terms of its... It, we said, okay, that's going to mess us up in a good way. And so hence... We've been deeply involved with Durham Can. So those are the two things as we kind of jump into this that our community has done and valued. There are other missional partnerships that are on the way in this community. We haven't stopped with that, but we thought our partnerships and this kind of diversity of conversation, that would be unique. And to some degree, I think a lot of other churches might be doing that. I get calls about it all the time, come and talk about this. But at least from our experience, we did not see that happening in terms of, of, of church life. And so that's where we've started. Um, I want to read a single verse tonight. Actually, I want somebody to read a single verse tonight. Would somebody grab 2 Corinthians 5, 17? It's on your text and read that for me. Oh, thank you. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. 
I'm going to reference something. This is unfair. I'm going to reference something that we did about 18 months ago. But just I want to lob that text at us and remind us of a couple things that we did about two summers ago when we did 2 Corinthians. And this will lead us into next week as we kind of jump into kind of biblical text conversations on this. But a couple things that we really found deeply valuable is that that language of new creation in 2 Corinthians. It's so easy from our posture to make that individualistic. That's the only way I ever heard that text taught for 35 years, that because I am in Christ, I am new and I am changed. But the idea that God is forming a new people, a people that is a, a, a people in the age of God's spirit being present that, and, and, if we, and we're going to read some gospel text and you're going to see how amazingly dramatic the work that Jesus has done to overcome all types of boundaries. But it's very clear that Jesus was forming a new people, a new creation, that the kingdom of God was going to live as a people in an entirely different way as a result of Jesus' death and resurrection and the people that were struggling to embody that. So I want you to hold on to that idea of new creation because over the next uh, several weeks, we are going to play that out. Uh, another thing that it gets back to your comment, Trigger, about recognition. One of the other things that we really struggled with in a beautiful way uh, when we looked at 2 Corinthians was the idea of how much cruciformity changes um, how we think about God's work, how, how the cross itself changes our understanding of the work of God. And it, it implores us to see sacrifice and transformation. And one of the powerful messages, and you're seeing none of my math on this tonight, um, but one of the most powerful messages of, of 2 Corinthians is the idea that there is not a center and an other. You know, and, and, and so many times when you're dealing with difference, um, the center holds the power and the other is disempowered in some way, form, or fashion. Even if being recognized and being invited into the conversation, they're still in a position of one down. One of the most amazing points of Second Corinthians, something that I don't think we will ever be able to live out perfectly in a community this small or in the whole body of the people who are worshiping God in any way, form, or fashion, is the idea that the other doesn't exist. The idea that as Jesus sets the table, there are no categorical exclusions. There's not any fine print that says, oh, by the way, if you are described as such, you aren't welcome or you need to change to be welcomed. There are not categorical uh, exemptions from God's work. And 2 Corinthians is a powerful text that gets in our face in that and makes us realize that so many times our work is to feel good about ourselves. I would love to find some text that assured me that the perfect way to follow God is by Tim. And if that were the case, I, I could feel the kind of confidence that I always want to do because I would love to manipulate God. I would love to be in control of God. I would love to be able to have that kind of power. But what the text constantly does is it constantly confronts and complicates my life. 
life and says, there are new ways to worship. There are new ways to think about this. There are prejudices that you hold that I, the creator, do not hold. There are prejudices you hold that the redeemer does not hold. And so I just throw that little kind of shotgun blast of 2 Corinthians. We did about 10 weeks on this last summer or two summers ago and remind us that that was a posture that we really set in as a community, this reality of not wanting to create an other because we're struggling to follow God. So this is an invitation over the next four or five weeks before we get to Lent this year, we'll be talking about uh, about diversity, diversities. We'll be talking about the gospel a great deal. And we'll be working through the work of Jesus and asking the hard question of not does it just change how we think, but how do we embody the gospel? As Travis said, if we're going to be people who are captured by the gospel, what we mean by that is how do we embody that gospel in this place? So I look forward. Please show up with your comments, your thoughts, Um, This will be safe space for that to happen and your dreams, your challenges, and we will continue to be a people of risk who who, uh, understand that we have many failures, many weaknesses, but we're part of this beautiful journey that encourages us not only to just struggle in those weaknesses, but to continue to imagine the work of God in this place. So I think this will be loads of fun for us to do that. Amy, I think you are going to lead us tonight in the confession and the absolution and, and the table. So as we come to the place of confession in our worship tonight, um, I just want to take a moment to recognize that as we move through this series uh, on diversity, these movements of confession, absolution, and invitation to the table are going to be really, really important markers for us. They're going to be places that we need to uh, to dwell in, places that we need to um, rest in. Um, there, I think, cannot be a complete conversation around diversity and diversities without uh, grief, without um, acknowledgement, acknowledgement of failure, without um, peace extended to one another. Um, and so I hope that you will um, allow us to kind of play with those ideas as we move through this series and to kind of see them in different ways. Um, Wade has always done a really amazing job of leading through uh, music, leading through us through those movements, through music. And so um, I hope that we can can continue to kind of push those boundaries and and learn what um, it really means to be a confessing people. And so tonight, uh, would you uh, pray this prayer of confession with me? The proof of God's amazing love is this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Because we have faith in him, we dare to approach God with confidence. In faith and penitence, let us confess our sin before God and one another. Gracious God, our sins are too heavy to carry, too real to hide, and too deep to undo. Forgive what our lips tremble to name, what our hearts can no longer bear. Set us free from a past that we cannot change. Open to us a future in which we can be changed. And grant us grace to grow more and more in your likeness and image. Through Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Amen. So when we talked about the idea of the empty chair here tonight, um, I was a little bit nervous because I saw Clint Eastwood talk to an empty chair for quite a while, several months ago, and I feared the worst 
Um, but I think that it is actually in this community and in this context something really redemptive and really honoring. And both, I want to, I want to actually play with that idea a little bit for a moment. I think this empty chair is definitely is Wade's uh, leadership, is Wade's legacy. But I also can see that this empty chair can be help us through these movements of confession, absolution, and invitation. We can confess that we have not gotten it all. We have missed something. There is something missing in this emptiness. We can also rest in the absolution that we are able to offer the peace of Christ to one another, that the peace of Christ is offered to all of us. And then that chair can also sit there as an invitation to move forward, to journey uh, into redemption with one another. So I, I ask for you tonight, if you would, as we listen to this song that Wade has uh, kind of invited us into over the years of peace, that um, you would listen to these words, that you would sing along, that you would offer absolution to one another as we gather together tonight. And actually what we're going to do tonight is we're going to move from this song of absolution um, to the table. The table that is laid before us is not our table. It is the table of Christ. We come to this rather boisterous table and we offer one another uh, bread and juice saying, this is the body of Christ broken for you, pouring wine and juice saying, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. So would you listen to this song? Would you rest in this song? Would you with me remember um, the great things that Wade has done in and through us? Um, and I invite you to celebrate that and uh, to be welcome to the table afterwards.
separates us Still his light shines in the dark His outstretched arms are Still strong enough to reach Behind these prison bars Set us free So maybe he's rained down from heaven Like little pieces of the sky Little keepers of the promise Falling on these souls that drought has dried In his blood Join us at the table. Go tonight in that same peace. And, uh, and it's a delight to have you with us. If you're here for the first time, you want us to get your email, then feel free to do that on that little yellow card. If not, no worries there as well. But we're delighted that you're, you're with us. Join us at the table. All are welcome.